Hi, my name is Valerie, and I have the pleasure of reading the scripture for today, which is found in the Pew Bibles on page 428. It is Psalms 23, 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Well, Valerie, thank you for, for reading, and uh, we're so grateful to have Kira here at church, aren't we? I think the Lord just continues to pour his blessings in immensely in ways that we couldn't ask or imagine, and Kira is one of those blessings, so we're grateful for her. Well, let me ask you all a question as we begin our sermon this morning that we don't often think about. What does God want your life to look like? Maybe let me phrase it a different way. What does God want your experience of life to be like? At a heart level, what does God desire for you no matter what swirls around you and no matter what comes against you? And I think we can answer that question broadly from all of Psalm 23 and more specifically here as we look at verse five this morning from verse five. Psalm 23 teaches us, as we've seen so far, that no matter what is going on in our lives, we can stand with confidence because of who our God is. God's character as the good shepherd enables us to declare confidently that we do not lack anything in verse one and that we will not fear even in the worst of circumstances, even in the very shadow of the valley of death in verse four. But as we come to verse five this morning, I'm gonna argue even more specifically that God desires for you to have confident joy in this life. Not happiness, not fluffy and good feelings, but a confident and defiant joy that is rooted in who God is. So my one point, the the one thing I want you to take away from this morning is that Psalm 25 or Psalm 23, verse 5, teaches us that despite the enemies out to destroy us, we can live with confident joy because God, the King, has conquered our enemies. God doesn't just want you to make it. He doesn't just want you to scrape by. He wants your heart to sing through this life because of your confidence in who he is for you. God wants you to walk out of church this morning feeling more alive and more confident in who he is than you walked in this morning. And so with that, let's turn to him 
in prayer. Father, we desperately need you this morning. We need you to teach us. We need you to encourage us. We need you to proclaim the truth of the gospel over us. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we open up your word this morning, would you minister through the weakness of my words, the gospel to each of our hearts, that we might see Jesus and grow taller and more confident in him. We love you, and it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, if you notice anything as we come to verse 5, as we've been paying attention to Psalm 23, it's likely that you notice that the image of the good shepherd is gone in verse 5. We don't hear of the shepherd anymore. At this juncture in the psalm, David switches the metaphor away from the shepherd and his sheep. And while we love the image of, of the good shepherd because of how it speaks to us uniquely of God's tenderness and kindness with us, what we find in verses five and six is just as glorious a picture of who God is. In Psalm 23, verse five, grounds our confidence and our confident joy in two interwoven images of God's character. So we see in this verse that God is both our host and our warrior. God is our host and our warrior. So let's look at each of these two images in turn. First, that God is our host. And at this time, would you look down and reread verse five with me so it's fresh in our minds there. Psalm 23, verse five. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. In the fall, uh, my wife Whitley and I had the chance to go visit our, our good friends who live out in California. And uh, the, the man in this couple is a, is a pastor. And so after we went to church with him on Sunday, we came home and his wife prepared for us the biggest and best charcuterie board that I've ever seen in my life. It, it was the size of a dining room table. And if, if you don't know what charcuterie is, it's basically the, the, an assortment of delicious meat and cheese. Like what could go wrong with that? It's incredible. And so she spread out this charcuterie board that was as big as a dining room table. And I remember, like, all afternoon just going and picking from all of the meat and cheese and fixings that were on this table while we watched football until I felt like I was just going to collapse into the couch. It was glorious. <laughs> and one of the things, as I've thought about that and just kind of the phenomenon, if you're aware of charcuterie more culturally, it feels like that's, every, that's all everybody eats for dinner anymore, um, but as we think about that, I think one of the reasons why we love it, other than that salted meat and cheese is delicious, is that it feels extravagant, right? It feels lavish. It feels like we shouldn't be able to eat this for whatever reason, especially whenever people are talented and make it look pretty and they put the meat in the shape of flowers and things on the table. It's decadent, and God prepares this kind of extravagant feast for his own people. He gets out the fine china. He sets the table. He prepares this kind of a feast for us. 
And notice at the end of the verse that our cup also overflows as we sit at this great banquet which God prepares. Now, many of you here at church, when you go out to eat, and I'll put myself in this category too, when we go out to eat, you won't order a glass of wine. But that's not because you think it's wrong or because you're afraid that people from church will see you ordering a glass of wine, but it's because you and I don't want to pay $13 for a glass of Malbec that's like this much of that glass. <laughs> we know it's a ripoff. But take the experience of going over to a good friend's house for dinner on a Friday night after a long week of work. And they are gracious to you. And they ask, can I get you a glass of wine? And you say, absolutely. And they pour you one. We'll just say the difference is this. Generous hosts don't skimp you. They fill you up to the brim. They abundantly fill your cup. And so it is with God at this feast that he throws for us. He fills our cups so full that if someone gets up from the table next, for, next to us and accidentally bumps the table when they get up to use the restroom, it spills all of the wine all over the table. That's how full our cups are. The imagery here is one of abundance and decadence and excess and extravagance. That's what's behind the image of oil, too, the anointing with oil. Oil, at least as it's used here, was, was poured on the heads of guests at fancy banquets like this as a way to perfume them, as kind of a way to freshen up before dinner. It was only used at the fanciest of banquets and feasts. And what all this imagery tells us is that God is our host, and he wants to lavish you with kindness and with blessing. He is the host of a great feast, and he wants you to have a seat at that party. He wants you to abound with confident joy in him. But God is not just our host here in Psalm 23, verse 5. God is also our warrior. And as we look at this banquet feast that's prepared here, there's one thing that stands out as odd. A, a, a guest that normally wouldn't be sitting at a banquet with you. It's enemies. Your enemies don't typically feast at the same banquet with you. They're not in your presence, as the psalm says. Now we have to ask the question then, why are there enemies at the feast that God is throwing for us? Or maybe... We ought to ask, why is there a feast going on with enemies all around us? I mean, think about soldiers as, they, as the enemy closes in, right? They're, they're not gorging themselves on charcuterie and fine wine. They're eating MREs. They're ready. They're prepared for the attack that's coming. But in order to understand why enemies and feasting are put together in this same Image, we have to understand something about the background of ancient warfare that would have been common practice at this time. So when ancient kings would win victory over an opposing army, they would often lead a train of celebration to the surrounding villages and towns in their kingdom. And so think of this like a Super Bowl parade, right? It's a celebration parade for the Super Bowl. So let's take this year. So you'd have in a typical train like this, you'd have the coach and maybe the star player of the Los Angeles Rams who won the Super Bowl, 
And then you'd have the whole team behind them. And then behind them, you'd have the captors, the defeated army who they have taken captive. In other words, you'd have the Cincinnati Bengals leading behind them. And as they would walk through these towns, each town they would stop and they would celebrate with the people of that town or village. And often the people of that town or village would throw a feast for the king and this army. And often the captors would have to sit and watch as their victors feasted in their presence. The enemies pictured here in Psalm 23, verse 5, are not surrounding a feast taking place before a battle, but rather they are watching the feast from the sidelines as captors and vanquished enemies. The feast of this verse pictures God not only as a gracious host who prepares a feast, but as a conquering warrior who subdues the enemies of his people and gives them peace. Now you and I, we have a hard time knowing what to do with the enemy language in the Psalms. You ever, you ever have this experience as you're reading the Psalms and you come across all these references to, to an enemy or to our enemies, and you think to yourself, I don't really have any enemies. Like, I don't think there's, nobody is actively hurling insults and mocking me and wishing for my death, like David so often writes about in the Psalms. It's hard sometimes for us as people living in the 21st century in a rel relatively peaceful nation to, we just don't have enemies in this same way. But this is where the scripture is helpful to us because it corrects our, our blind spots. It says, actually, we do have enemies, but not just enemies as we normally conceive them. Think of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, although we may not have physical humans hurling insults at us and wishing for our death like the psalmist David does so often, we face real enemies that oppose us and want to see us undone. We face the enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And make no mistake, Christian, these enemies are seeking to destroy you and rob you of your confident joy in God. And I think when we start to conceive of enemies like this, it starts to make a lot more sense in our own experience. Because we know all too well the persistent battle with sin that dwells within us. Continuing to fight, but continuing to see the same ugly pride and selfishness and judgmentalism and laziness rear its ugly head again in our lives. We know all too well the lies that the enemy puts in our head daily. Those vague accusations he loves to tell us that we are failures that God and others could never love us because of what we are and what we've done, and that we never do enough. I heard Pastor Dane Ortland say in a sermon that, that these lies are like banners that flash over our head every morning when we wake up. 
What are the things that you immediately think about yourself and others as you roll out of bed and start your day? There's a good chance that so many of them are lies that flash over you like a banner. And our enemy knows where we're weak. Martin Luther warns us not to argue with the devil because, quote, he's had 5,000 years of experience. He's tried out all his tricks on Adam, Abraham, and David, and he knows exactly the weak spots. And we know all too well that the sting and the fear of that great enemy, death, we know that death isn't how things are supposed to be. And yet we're terrified of loved ones facing that enemy and of ourselves facing that enemy. And all of these enemies seek to derail our confident joy in who God is. And you see, this is precisely why David pens verse 5. David considered these enemies of his conquered because of the confidence that God as the warrior king would defeat his enemies. Look at the transition here. We haven't made mention of this yet, but think of the transition between verse 4 to verse 5 in this psalm. We're going to read it again. If you would look down there at verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. See, it's one thing to simply get through the darkest times of life, but it's another thing entirely to triumph in and through those hard times. David is confident Not just that God will be with him through the darkest valleys, even through death, but that one day God would defeat his enemies and show David to be in the right in their very presence. This confidence in God's character allowed David to count his enemies as good as vanquished in the present, even though we know as we read the Bible, we read the Psalms, that David had countless enemies persist in plaguing him throughout his life. David shows us in verse 5 that we can have confident joy, not simply because God will be with us in and through the valley of the shadow of death, but that he has conquered these enemies and now abundantly hosts us as his guests at a great banquet, even now in the midst of our enemies. David is confident, to use the language of our first song in that third verse this morning, he's confident that God will turn his tragedies into triumphs. And church, David's confidence in God's character as the host and the warrior was not in vain. And let me tell you this morning, your confident joy in God is not in vain. Because God has conquered your enemies and prepares a table before you. Jesus himself is the conquering king. Jesus came to vanquish the enemies of his people. On the cross, 
As we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and put them to shame by giving of his life for us. The cross was where the throne of King Jesus was established as he defeated the enemies of Satan's sin and death. And Jesus rose from the grave, signaling the death blow to all of our enemies, and he ascended to heaven where he is preparing for us a great feast, which we will one day be ushered into, a feast celebrating the victory of Jesus in abundant joy. And for all those who trust in Jesus, if your trust, if your confidence is in Jesus, his victory is yours as well. We don't just count our enemies as vanquished as David did. Our enemies have been vanquished. They've been robbed of their power. They've been disarmed. As it says in Revelation 12, the great serpent, the liar and accuser who opposes us has been thrown down. We have triumphed in Jesus Christ. And so like I said at the beginning, What I want us to see this morning is that despite the enemies out to destroy us, we can live with confident joy because King Jesus has conquered our enemies. And so, before we come to the Lord's table, let me just leave you with two practical implications of this wonderful truth that I pray will just buoy up your life in confident joy in Jesus. And the first is that because Jesus is your conquering king, your enemies can't touch you. Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, stands as one of the most beloved hymns of all time. And as I revisited it this week, I was reminded again why. Listen to the third verse of this hymn, given what we've been considering this morning. It says, And though this world with devils filled, think enemies, should threaten to undo us, to destroy our joyful confidence in God. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Christian, when the enemy tempts you toward that sin that has plagued you for a long time, when he waves the banner of lies over your head, when he presses the thoughts of death upon you so that you're crippled with anxiety and fear, say to him the name of your conquering king, Christ. Expose him for the liar that he is. You have the power in Jesus to do that. Jesus has destroyed his power over you. He has given you the truth of his good news to triumph. Resist the devil, as it says in James. He will flee from you. And in fact, everything that the enemy throws at you, and this is where this gets even better, everything that the enemy throws at you is actually working out for your triumph in the Christian life. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, beloved verse for all of us, says that God works 
all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then later on in the chapter, starting in verse 35, he goes on. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As C.S. Lewis puts it on the lips of one of his characters in his great work, The Great Divorce, people say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Whatever tragedy you might be walking through, you are assured that Christ will turn it to triumph by his redeeming power, such that you will look past, back on your past struggles and see a glimpse of heaven itself in them. Look to your king. Even if enemies encircle you, look to your king and take heart this morning, church. And the second thing I'll say to boost you up and put wind in your sails today is that because Jesus is your gracious host, there is always a feast before you. Noah, earlier in the service, read that beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. I want to read uh, a few verses on from that to verse 8. If you want to turn there with me, we'll be looking at this as we close. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. And listen to this great encouragement about what is ours to come. It says there, On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, our great enemy, death. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And church, that feast is not just for a future day. Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, as our host, lets us into that feast early. In Christ, you are already seated at the heavenly banquet table. You can feast this morning on the abundance that you have in Christ. Your cup can be full no matter who or what tries to pour it out. In this morning, in Christ and in this great meal of the Lord's table, we get to taste the appetizers of that great feast. 
we have a table spread before us in the presence of our enemies. And so no matter what surrounds you today, no matter what clouds of depression you may find yourself in, no matter what lies have been pressing in on you, no matter how much you might fear death for yourself or for a loved one, you can walk out of church this morning defiant and joyfully confident in God because he has prepared a feast for you, a feast which we get a taste of this morning. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, trusting in Jesus, our host, we are nourishing ourselves on his abundance to continue on in confident joy that one day our enemies will be fully and finally defeated and we will feast in the presence of God. As it says in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And on that day when he comes, we will feast in the fullness. Well, just a few words about the Lord's Supper here before we, we come to the table. Just say, this meal was given to those who trust in Jesus as their Savior. And so I'll say to you this morning, if, you, if you're not trusting in Jesus as, as your Savior, we would humbly ask that you stay in your seat as we come forward to take the supper uh, and not take this. Um, it's, it's, it's just, we, we do not want you to say something about yourself that is untrue. We want you, if you come here, if you come to the table, we want you to say full-heartedly, I am a follower of Jesus and I trust in Jesus as my confidence. And if that's you, there is a seat for you at the table. We welcome you to this table. Uh, and as far as details go, um, so if you've been with us for a little while, this might look more familiar. If you're newer to us, this will look a little bit different. But uh, we're going to come forward and receive um, the, the Lord's Supper this morning. And so um, how that's going to work is uh, you're going to stand up whenever you're ready. The band will be up here playing a song for us. And uh, you'll walk down the center aisle. And we'll have um, two people up here on either side with, with the elements. And you'll take from them and then file back around the outside. And we'd ask that you hold on to the elements and not take of them until we all receive, and then I'll get back up and we can feast together as a body. One more quick note. We, we know that um, COVID things are still swirling around, and so if you're uncomfortable with coming up here and putting your hands into a tin to take um, a cup uh, from, from that Tin. Uh, there's, there are communion cups prepackaged in the pew, and so you feel free to, to partake of that if you're not comfortable coming up here and taking. One final note, as you, as you come up to take it, um, the, the, the bread and the juice are kind of two cups stacked in one. So there's a, a piece of bread underneath and then the cup of juice. So you only need to take one. No need to double dip. <laughs> You'll get both if you just take one. Well, let me pray for us, prepare our hearts for this feast, and then, and then we'll have the band come back up and lead us in a song as we come to the table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have conquered all of our enemies. And the great truth is that, as we'll see next week, the only thing that pursues us are not enemies, 
but are the faithful love and kindness of our King. And so, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we pray that our hearts would be encouraged, that they would be rooted and grounded in confidence and joy in who you are for us as our host and our warrior, who has defeated our enemies and who invites us to feast. So, Lord Jesus, encourage our hearts and help us to draw from you strength and joy to go on another day. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray these things.